yesterday in the questions and some this morning in the practice discussion groups. A little bit of a theme of (coughs) trusting our practice, trusting the Dharma emerged. And so I'd like to explore that topic, trust. Trust could be understood as a translation or as a aspect of the Pali term sada, which is usually or often translated as faith. And it is found in several places in the teachings in particular. It's it's in the area of uh, the refuges that what we talked about the other night, the exploring the refuges. Where do we find safety? Where do we place our trust, essentially? And one of the expressions of um, one who has um, kind of gone for refuge, who has uh, kind of developed that, those refuges, is that they have confidence in the Buddha, confidence in the Dharma, confidence in the Sangha, trust, also the word there, trust, faith in the Buddha, faith in the Dharma, faith in the Sangha. And so that's one place it's brought into the teachings. Another is in the teaching of the five faculties, which um, include five qualities of mind, we could say, five aspects of how our mind meets experience. And those include faith, sadha, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And actually, this, these five together, in, in Burma, they're a very central teaching. They are essentially, the, the, they're, they're one of the first things teachers will talk about, pointing to these are the factors, these are the functions of the meditating mind. when there is confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. The mind is present, balanced, stable, meeting experience. And um, we could say that variations on those, you know, when, when um, say energy's a little low, perhaps our meditation um, gets a little bumpy, or, or when uh, concentration is weak, there's less ability to stay with experience, and so we can we can see these factors varying in our in our meditation. 
they kind of ground in some ways out of which they all come is is this uh, sense of trust or faith or confidence you know trust in a way we we have to have some sense of trust in order to begin some sense of confidence in the teachings and what the Buddha had to offer. And this points back to that uh, faculty of wisdom because we don't just have faith in the abstract. It is faith in something. And uh, often the five faculties are described or, you know, you start with faith and then out of faith, when there is faith, energy will arise, you know, kind of like there's a kind of a natural unfolding of these that, that as faith gets stronger, energy gets stronger. As energy gets stronger, the mindfulness strengthens because we are applying our energy in the direction of mindfulness. And as mindfulness strengthens, as energy and mindfulness come together and strengthen, concentration strengthens. And all of those four together create the conditions for wisdom to arise. And yet, we have to kind of circle back and say, you know, we have to start somewhere. And that is often, we, we have to start by hearing something, hearing the teachings, having something to kind of aim towards. And so in some ways we can look at this cycle or these five faculties as being driven by these, this twin, twin engine of faith and wisdom. Because as we, as we start, as we engage hearing the teachings and maybe that inspires some sense of confidence to step on the path and begin practicing, then we begin to gain some confidence, gain some understanding for ourselves in that wisdom, which strengthens the wisdom, which further inspires the faith which deepens our practice, which strengthens the wisdom, which further inspires that sense of trust. And so the, the, I, we can think of our practice as being an interweaving of faith and wisdom through the long arc of our practice. And so a kind of an inquiry or an exploration of trust, faith, confidence, that's what I'd like to, to look at today. as I pointed to the other night when we talked about the refuges. It's often an interesting question to look at what are we trusting? Where do we place our trust? In our kind of conditioned lives, perhaps before we meet the Dharma. We may place our trust in jobs, having money, a relationship. We place our trust in things. We place our trust in having certain status, perhaps being seen in a certain way by other people. We place our trust in our feelings and our beliefs. You know, when we are 
we don't necessarily think of it in this way. Like when we're angry and acting out of anger or some kind of reactivity, when, ang- when reactivity is arising and we are, you know, fully in there and reacting from that place, in a way we are implicitly trusting that anger or that reactivity. Like we, we believe in its story that acting on this reactive emotion is what will bring some kind of stability or happiness or it will allow me to become in control of the situation if I'm acting out of this reactivity. And so we, we, we're placing our trust in that reactivity. And so we need to be curious and honest in this exploration. Are our usual places of trust really trustable? And we learn quite directly that a mind of reactivity, when we when we are in that mind, when that mind is is strong, that that is not a place that is a trustable place to act from. And yet, there is an understanding that we begin to come to that even when reactivity is arising, that the mind that knows that, the mind that can meet that with wise mindfulness, that is trustable. And so the the experience itself, the, the reactivity itself isn't trustable. And yet we learn, we find our way to trusting that it's okay for reactivity to be arising when we are present, balanced, aware, knowing it as a present moment arising, understanding it as this is This is reactivity happening in the moment. There is such a vast difference between being caught by reactivity and believing the the delusion, the, the stories of that reactivity, and in understanding, oh, reactivity is happening in this moment. And that, that is trustable. The mind that can, can witness that is trustable. And so we begin with some wisdom, with some hearing perhaps of the teachings, and this is really where the wisdom begins our practice. If we think about the Eightfold Path, right view is at the very front of the practice, at the very start of the practice. And we clearly don't begin by having this 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 um, this perspective. We don't begin by being able to. Oh, this is frustration arising. That would be that would be the the perspective of wise view creating wise mindfulness. And yet we don't we don't start there. And we we begin by hearing the teachings. We begin by hearing some some kind of wisdom. It's possible we, we begin by hearing 
perhaps this possibility for freedom, the possibility for release from our reactivity. And, and the, the teachings themselves, an important aspect of the teachings, the wisdom that's offered there, is that these teachings are not simply something to take in and hear and think about. But the, the wisdom that the Buddha offers, deep within that wisdom is, is the injunction to act. In the, in the Four Noble Truths, understand suffering. The teaching says understand suffering and that means an engagement. And so we hear the teachings and hopefully, partly because the teachings have this, in, this injunction, and also I think we, we perhaps are inspired, we, we perhaps are inspired when we hear some of these teachings, um, because like when the Buddha taught, as I said the other day, he said, it's possible to free your mind. I've freed my mind, and you can too. It's possible for a human to do this, for a human being to do this. And so there's, there's that bit of inspiration that can kind of engender a kind of confidence or trust to step onto the path. And that is absolutely needed. If we sit here and think about the teachings, no matter how much we think about them, it is not going to transform us until we engage with the practices. And so the trust here is, isn't, I mean, sometimes the word faith for me, at least in my um, kind of religious upbringing, when I was asked to have faith, it felt like I was being asked to have faith just in some idea or concept that I couldn't fully understand. It wasn't, I wasn't, so much I didn't feel like I was being asked to have faith in some, taking some step in acting somehow. I felt like I was being asked to believe something <coughs> that I had no way to personally verify. And so that word for me, faith, brings in that notion of just like belief, of almost blind belief or a sense of believing something that cannot be confirmed or verified in experience. And the, there is an aspect of belief in our practice because there's so much in, in what the Buddha taught that he, he asks us to say, yes, you know, maybe you can't see this now. I have seen this. And you too can see it if you explore with mindfulness explore your experience and and be curious about what is suffering how does it arise how is it created you will begin to see for yourself and so there's an initial kind of placing faith in something that we don't know for ourselves and yet it's an encouragement to engage in something that we are pointed that we will see for ourselves and so that, for me at least, was an ins inspiration. That that's where trust begins. And so in some ways, in my own practice, the, 
the um, kind of, I felt like I was just being asked to run an experiment. You know, it's like I had no clue when I first met the teachings, no clue. It did not even make sense to me that turning towards reactivity and being mindful of it, being aware of my reactivity, it did not make sense to me that that would have any possibility of freeing the mind from reactivity. I just thought, that's just going to make me more reactive if I turn and pay attention to that reactivity. And yet, friends who had been practicing said, no, actually, I've seen this work. This book that I was offered encouraged and said, this, this works. And so there was some measure of trusting that other people said, I've tried this. I've seen some benefit. Try it. Even though I couldn't understand it, it was like I was willing to run the experiment. I was willing to say, okay, this is a hypothesis. We'll see. Is this going to work? And that was, in, a, in effect, my early form of trust in this practice. It's a form of saying, yeah, I'm willing to engage. I'm willing to suspend my disbelief and see what happens. So that's where trust begins is with a willingness to engage, whether or not we understand, even intellectually understand, the practice or how it might work. And as we engage, this is this beginning of the interweaving of trust and wisdom, because we are essentially engaging with the wisdom, putting the wisdom to work, in our practice because we have a little bit of trust. And as we do that, as we actually engage with those teachings, we begin, and actually pretty quickly, we can begin to taste some of the fruits, some of the benefits. And so there's a kind of a feedback loop that starts that we engage through a sense of trust in the teachings. And then there's, there's a beginning of seeing, wow, doing this practice, there's more settling in the mind. There's less reactivity. There's, there can be times of more well-being. Some of those settlings come as the mind simply just moves into the, the practice of just like, come be in the present moment for a little bit. You know, even just the simple, you know, be with the breath a little bit, you know, begins to, to weaken reactivity through the cultivation of concentration. So some of what we see, some of the trust comes through the, um, the cultivation of a, a little bit of a stability of mind. And just the, that stability of mind, the, the, the mind settling through concentration through being present and not being pulled off into thoughts. I mean, just that simple piece of, of the mind being able to stay in the present moment and not being continually yanked by its conditioning into reactivity. Just that offers us some sense of, wow, this is helpful. Okay, I'll do more of this. This is helpful. And so some of that sense of trust comes from the concentration, the, the states that we touch into around concentration. And some of the trust is developed 
as we begin to directly contact and experience for ourselves some of the wisdom that the Buddha was pointing to. We begin to see directly some ways in which this practice, we begin to understand how this practice actually helps us to let go. There's a lot of different ways we begin to see wisdom working. We begin to, to see you know, that, for instance, one of the simplest ways, one of the early ways we start to see wisdom working is when we are meeting some particularly difficult reactive pattern and we recognize, oh, this is just anger. This is just impatience. This is just confusion. So we, 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 we see it essentially as something arising in the present moment. We see it as, you know, so that perspective of pay attention to what's happening in the present moment as it's happening begins to, we begin to see, it's, 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 we, we feel, it's not just seeing it that way, but we feel a kind of space that's created as we see, oh, this is just some kind of reactivity, there's a feeling of release around that, a little space. It may not be like the whole pattern falls away, but, but it may feel like, oh, actually, I, I, it's not such a big deal that this is happening. I can, I can hang out with this. And so we, we recognize a shift in our mind. We feel a lessening of the suffering around that pattern. And that's that's, that's a kind of wisdom at work, seeing this is just something happening in the present moment. And we feel the manifestation of that through some of the weakening of the way we'd been caught, some of the way we'd been suffering. When we uh, explore our experience with a little bit more continuity, we also begin to see the conditioned nature of our experience. And this too is wisdom. The mind of wisdom understands the conditioned nature of experience. When wisdom is present, it, it can begin to see how uh, an arising thought, a thought arises based on some perhaps sense impression. You know, we, may, we may see something, a flower. And because we see, you know, we see, we see the, the thought and then we see that there's an association in our mind. That flower is yellow. We start thinking about yellow things. And then we remember that person who was wearing that yellow shirt and how they said something or did something that hurt us. So we, we begin to see that, you know, out of this conditioned arising, seeing something, a thought arises. Associations arise. One of those associations, reactivity arises. Seeing that um, happen, 
as we actually watch that unfold, wisdom watching that unfolds understands this is simply nature. This is not me doing this. I'm not doing this creation of reactivity. It's, it's kind of just the way it's unfolded here. So that wisdom begins to see the conditioned nature of experience, kind of making or helping us to see experiences more impersonal, the impersonal nature of experience. This too is wisdom at work. And again, we, you know, where the trust comes in is as we see that wisdom at work. It's not just the wisdom; it's it's the mind of as it understands feels the releasing of the caughtness around something. You know, as we as we recognize this, of course, this reactivity is arising. This. This, this pattern has been conditioned by so many, so many things of the past. As we start to see that, there's, there's a release of the, the kind of, there can be a release of feeling caught around it. And again, there's more of a space. Sometimes the pattern of reactivity just, you know, goes all together. And so there's a feeling to me that inspires the trust and that feeling is the releasing of the suffering the feeling of and it may not be a full full blown you know suffering vanishes that does happen sometimes sometimes wisdom is so strong that something is seen arising and wisdom is right there to meet it mindfulness and wisdom are right there and they just vanish that pattern just vanishes instantly that sometimes happens, but more often it's more of a, a feeling of a kind of a decoupling. It's like our gears have been engaged. They're kind of, you know, we're, we're engaged in this kind of pattern and reacting, and it's kind of like the gears get disengaged, and it's the pattern's still there, but it's like there's no longer anything for it to be caught with. And so it kind of has its momentum and that gear keeps spinning for a while but it begins to unwind and eventually stops. And so we see, we start to see wisdom working and we feel the release that that wisdom brings. I, I said couple of days ago, I, I said, it is wisdom. It is understanding that releases us. It is understanding that transforms through that engagement, through the engagement, through the confidence that this I'm willing to engage. Through that confidence, there's the possibility for the wisdom to grow and for us to see and experience the release. And that experience of seeing what one person in one retreat asked me, what are the symptoms of wisdom? We start seeing the symptoms of wisdom. The symptoms of wisdom inspire greater trust. And so we're more willing to engage. 
more willing to meet our difficult experience because now at this point it's less of a sense of having to believe something that somebody else said hey this will help you and more of a sense of yeah I've seen this work I know it's helpful and so we understand more directly ourselves the value of the practice we understand the value and because we understand that value like that's where we begin to place our that's where we begin to place our trust and where we engage and so trust deepens strengthens so over time in the practice it it sh- the, the trust you know, this interweaving trust and wisdom the trust moves and shifts from trust in what somebody else has said to trust in our own capacity to engage and that's another form of trust that maybe we we start with the trust of well okay I'm not I I, I don't I don't quite see how this is going to work but I am I am I am able to engage and maybe beginning to get some flavors of it so we begin to get a trust in our own capacity and then we begin to develop a sense of trust in wisdom itself that this practice leads to the development of wisdom trust in the in the wisdom trust in the dharma and this is a real deepening of trust as we engage through this interweaving of faith and wisdom trust and wisdom we begin to develop a greater sense of discernment of what in our minds is trustable and what is not so trustable when our minds are more trustable and when they're not we begin to recognize as i said earlier the you know when wise mindfulness is present when that sense of being able to witness oh this is this is just reactivity that aspect of the mind is trustable wise mindfulness is trustable and we begin to recognize when we're caught when that when when it's a little bit harder to be stepped back and perhaps we can't uncatch ourselves but maybe there's enough wisdom to recognize yeah this is not the time to act this is this is this this the mind is really bought into this belief right now and maybe this isn't the time to to trust this mind so we begin to learn and discern when to trust our minds and when not to trust. Our practice, you know, this interweaving of 
trust and wisdom, you know, I've been describing it as a kind of a deepening of trust and a deepening of the confidence and a deepening of the understanding. And yet, you know, it's not this like one direction, like always getting more and more clear, more and more strengthening of mindfulness. The, you know, there is a general direction that we're headed towards understanding. And yet the the path has lots of waves to it. It 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 goes it maybe it maybe has a direction to it, but the waves are so big they mask the direction, you know, it's like the, the deepening of trust is happening, but it's like, you know <laughs> going in that way where sometimes the mind is is trustable, sometimes it's not trustable and, and so it's not it's not something we're doing wrong when we see that this there's times when the mind is trustable and times when it's not. So there are times when we begin to recognize, um, you know, more of the capacity, you know, at, at a certain point there's, a, there's a, a beginning to trust and this practice I think really puts us at the edge of trust at times, to trust that, yeah, everything is it is possible to be mindful of anything. And whatever is arising, wisdom can develop with that. That, that we don't have to kind of construct a, a state of concentration or something, some kind of place from which to do practice. But that we, we begin, to begin to trust that our minds do have the capacity at times to simply witness even very challenging states of mind. And we begin to recognize, when is that possible? And this is something I, I ask you to check into a lot in the, in the meetings. I, I encourage people to check because there's often beliefs, there's views in our minds of, wow, there's a lot of reactivity in there. I better like come to the breath and settle the mind down so that I, I, I'm you know, not, not get, so I don't get caught by that reactivity. And, you know, sometimes we actually have the capacity to be with that reactivity more often than we might think. Our minds have that capacity. And so, check. Is it possible to be present, to be with a reactivity without getting lost? If we can be with it, even, even recognizing kind of a toggling between Oh, here's uh, just, you know, some w- when we can clearly recognize, oh yeah, that's, that's sleepiness, yep, oh, and, and there's the sense of no problem, you know, th- that, that, we off- that we can recognize, we begin to recognize, oh, that is trustable. I see there's no problem, I can just watch this. But there are times when we can also recognize, oh, there's sleepiness and I'm caught by it. And sometimes we might think, oh, I'm caught by it. I better do something else. But sometimes we can also recognize, oh, sleepiness and I'm caught. That's what's happening. And we can step back into a wise mindfulness of that. And that can be trustable, knowing that I'm caught. Caught by sleepiness. Sometimes as we explore that edge of caught, not caught, that simple practice around reactivity, that's one of my favorites, actually, to recognize, you know, as, as I'm watching something, it's not just a, you know, continuously um, 
more and more easeful, often there's, I'm able to see it, and then there's like, uh, I get stuck, and then it's like, oh, I'm caught, okay, and, uh, and then it falls apart, the caught falls apart, it's like, oh, caught, not caught, caught again, not caught, wow, the whole thing fell apart, it's gone, wow, what was it? Oh, there it is, <laughs> I remember, okay, Whoop. oh, caught again, and we, we watch this, you know, fluctuation between caught, not caught, and sometimes it, it disappearing entirely. We begin to trust this, the process of practice. And we also learn when it is time to take some skillful action, when it is time to redirect the attention. There will be times when the, the power of a challenge of a difficulty is stronger than our capacity to meet it. And when we see that, out of compassion, it can be really useful to just like, yep, you know, I see you and you can stay in the room with me, but I'm going to put my attention on my feet right now. Just like redirect the attention. Turn to seeing or hearing or some avenue or field of attention that where that reactivity is not being triggered we can redirect the attention sometimes that's that's really helpful that sometimes is where we can re-land in trust and gain again the confidence of yep the mind can stabilize here yep that that's where things can stabilize As our practice deepens, as the practice unfolds, there are some edges, I think, around trust. I'll just name a couple of them that I've seen in my own practice of places where it was like, kind of like, wow, can I trust this? I don't know. One area around this kind of edge of trust is brought to the forefront with this style of practice in particular, and that is in beginning to trust that I don't have to control the mind. I don't have to be in control of the meditation. I don't have to be in control of what I'm paying attention to. If we're familiar with practices where we do a directing of attention, that stepping back from that control can be a little unfamiliar and unsettling. And so, you know, this is a this is an edge to the practice of of uh, beginning to trust that whatever is arising, you know, whatever is arising, wisdom can develop right there. We begin to shift from believing that some kind of certain special state of mind needs to be there or something particular needs to happen to just trusting that whatever is arising, that is the perfect place to cultivate wisdom. Every experience, whatever's happening, 
doesn't matter what's happening, whether it's a thought, whether it's a reaction, whether it's the arising of bliss and love, wholesome states, whether it's a sound, they all have the nature of being impermanent, unreliable, and fundamentally uncontrollable, not self. And that understanding can develop with any experience. The trust in that, the trust that it doesn't matter what's arising. And that can be an edge for us. Another edge can happen or you know, starts to show up as we begin to get a little bit more continuity in the practice. We actually see more areas we're not mindful. We see more gaps in the mindfulness. And often when our, we start to see gaps, it's like we have a sense of like trying to double down on trying to stay present. And so as there, paradoxically in a way, as there's more continuity, we see more places where we're not mindful. We see more holes in our mindfulness. And we may like, like just try to hold on to that mindfulness, like double down on that. One um, place of practice or one exploration of practice around this, you know, seeing those places where the mindfulness slips out like that, you know, as the mindfulness gets more continuous is to, rather than doubling down and trying to stay mindful, kind of to say, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like adding to the energy in a way. When there's a little bit more continuity, it's the continuity of mindfulness that's beginning to re reveal the, the slips, the gaps. And if we engage in effort, that very effort is a, is a kind of a more, um, it's a more active part of our minds. And, and that very active part of the mind of actually trying to stay mindful is likely to obscure the subtlety of the slipping out. And so there's a, a place or a time in practice where we have to kind of be more curious about the slipping. I think I talked about this a little bit in the hall. You know, be a little more curious about the, w the slipping out not trying to control the mind to keep it present, but inclining towards a curiosity. How does it get lost? What happens there? This, this kind of curiosity has served me incredibly in my practice. The willingness, you know, seeing over and over again that 
I'd be pretty present and kind of stable, and then I'd be gone. And then mindfulness would come back. It's like, wow, missed that again. And not judging that, but just being willing to keep trying. Maybe I'll keep trying. I'll try again. Is there something? Can I, can I, can I see? Can I see that? But not doing that, trying to see. It's a paradox there. It's kind of more of, a, of an intention of curiosity. Can the mindfulness begin to kind of ride and follow where the attention goes as it slips out? Rather than trying to hold on to what we already are familiar with. I would say often, and this is a kind of another area or terrain of the of the edge of a practice is that often when the mind starts, you know, slipping out in that way, or at least sometimes, sometimes it's simply that the mind is just picking up on some, you know, one one very common way that that slipping out happens, I'd say, is when we're kind of in a field of awareness and there maybe is a sense of delight or appreciation there and almost like a little bit of inclining or a little bit of attachment to that, whatever it is. And, and the mind will pick up on something like, you know, the sound of, of that woodpecker, you know, and, and the, the mind picks up on that, but you're not consciously aware that the mind has picked up on a perception. And that is one of the most common ways for awareness to slip out, that we don't see that the functioning of attention has shifted. We had been kind of in this broader state, perhaps, or, or recognizing, you know, kind of a state of calm. And because there's a subtle attachment to that, there may not be the recognition that the interest in the mind had gone to the woodpecker. And because we don't see that shift of attention, that is an avenue out of which the mind will wander. So that's a very common way for, for this to happen. And you can start to see that. You can start to, to witness and begin to get comfortable and familiar with that shifting of attention and seeing how the, if when we see the attention shifts, so if we're in that larger space of, you know, calm and just kind of the receiving experience and like a, a little bit of, oh, this is good, I'm doing pretty good here. And, and then the attention shifts to something like, the sound of a woodpecker, if we can see that shift, we are mindful of that. We don't have to do anything other than notice, oh, attention, wow, attention shifted. It's like that exploration I've been encouraging in the walking, the, the shift from seeing to looking. As you can get familiar with those shifts of attention, those are very common places for the attention to slip out. And so being willing to see and watch, how does the mindfulness slip out? How does it slip out? That willingness to see, can the, can the mindfulness kind of ride that slipping will, uh, over time, allow us to see things, see more things, see basically how our mind works. And yet sometimes in that slipping out, you know, the, the I described that one, you know, one very common way I've seen the mind slipping out is that shift to some clear perception that my mind didn't, or I didn't consciously notice that perception. But another way the mind starts slipping out as our practice deepens is by um, 
And kind of, as the mind begins to settle, sometimes the mind begins to slip into really unfamiliar terrain. We talked about this a little bit yesterday in the question period, that there can be experiences that just are, wow, don't know what that is. And their very unfamiliarity of it makes it harder to stay with. Or sometimes it's something so unfamiliar that our minds don't even have the any way of, of um, kind of landing with it in a way. It's just so unfamiliar that as soon as the mind gravitates towards that unfamiliar experience, the awareness gets lost because there's, there's like nothing familiar about it. There's nothing that we can, we can say, oh yeah, that's what's happening right now. I know that's what's happening right now. And I would say more and more as we practice, you know, as the practice deepens, this is one of the things that happens, that the mind begins to gravitate towards things that we are not familiar with. So there's this um, beginning to trust in okayness with not knowing, an okayness with unfamiliarity, an okayness with, I have no idea what's happening. Sometimes there can be reactivity there. We, we kind of, you know, I don't know what's happening. I've got to go back to know what something is. Or if I don't know what's happening, I must be doing something wrong. This kind of pattern of gravitating towards basically it's it the mind as the more we practice it starts to gravitate towards release it starts to gravitate towards freedom letting go and that often can have a flavor that we're not familiar with and again if we are trying to stay present with the idea of, I need to know what's happening. We are never going to be able to allow the mindfulness to explore the unfamiliar. If we are always putting our sense of Practice is going well when I know exactly what's happening. If that's the way we're functioning with our practice, practice is going well when I know what's happening. We will, we will never be able to fully understand freedom. My sense of when the Buddha talked about freedom he said, the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion. He also indicated it with words that n- indicate something along the lines of, you know, hard to describe, really hard to see. We have no idea what freedom will look like if we are 
always trying to stay with what we know, trying to not, if we're not willing to allow the mind to slip into the unknown and begin again to explore, can, can the mind stay with, you know, it's like that, I talked about the, the mind kind of gravitating towards well-being. And I think that also, as we practice, not only does it gravitate towards what conventional kind of well-being, but it begins to gravitate towards freedom. And so in some ways, what we have to begin to trust is that we have no idea where and how to find freedom. But our minds, we have to begin to trust that wisdom and this um, practice can allow the conditions that let us, that let the mind find its way to freedom. And we have to trust that. We cannot be in control of that. And that is probably the biggest leap of trust. That uncontrollability, the, 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 the even the, the, the framing of the um, freedom as the letting go of what we're holding on to. It evokes that sense of deep, having to deeply trust because we don't know where we're going to land or actually there isn't a landing in my sense of this. So the trust, so again, this deepening of trust, deeper and deeper levels of trust that are asked of us as we do this practice. Opening to a sense of trust at some point. Again, and this is, we, we learn when, when we, when the mind is trustable, we begin to learn when wisdom is, is operating and when we need to get out of the way and just allow that wisdom, trust that wisdom to show what it understands. And we need to recognize when we need to engage. But over time we do develop the sense of trust that the practice is unfolding on its own. And we need to learn to trust it even when we don't comprehend it. Even when we have no intellectual clue about what's happening. And so this area of trust in allowing the mind to release into the unknown, to me there's, there's some places and ways in the, the whole notion of beginning to be curious about the mind slipping out, you know, those seeing those gaps in mindfulness as there's a little more continuity the willingness to let the mind uh, be curious about those gaps. How does it get lost? That to me is like training wheels for this kind of letting go, for the kind of letting go, the deepest letting go. It's like we're, we're learning, slowly over time we learn to trust, 
Yeah, it's okay to not control the mind so fully here. I can allow it to slip out. And wow, there's learning that happens. And that learning actually creates more continuity. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of avenue for exploration in trust in that willingness to notice where the mind gets lost. How does that happen? Curiosity about how the mindfulness gets lost. Where does it slip out? And the more we begin to trust the practice, the wisdom itself, the deeper the release, the deeper the letting go. So let's sit for a moment. <coughs> 